Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's episode, we sit down with Denny Hu, a Shanghai-based journalist for Women's Wear Daily, a premier fashion industry publication. Our discussion with Denny covers a range of topics, including the latest fashion, consumer, and lifestyle trends in China. We delve into Denny's career path, the expansion of luxury brands in China, and the intriguing interplay between fashion and food in China's cafe pop-ups. The conversation also touches on the increasing popularity of certain sports and lifestyle trends, the widespread acceptance of yoga pants as everyday wear, and the emergence of Chinese fashion designers on the global stage. Additionally, we explore the concept store boom, the impact of user-generated content on brand promotion, and the strength of domestic brands and designers in the beauty and fashion sectors in China. Enjoy. It's funny you mentioned Lululemon because it's definitely one of the first and also brands that's kind of leading that trend and still is. There are local players like Maya Active, but I think there's a consensus among consumers that like the, it's hard. The Lululemon fabric is so hard to hard to sort of replicate and beat. And then the fit, it really makes you look skinny. That's like what Chinese people want to look like. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Denny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Todd. So glad to be here on the show. I'm Denny, Denny Hu. I'm um, a journalist for a writer for the Women's Wear Daily based in Shanghai, China at the moment. And you're in Shanghai right now? Yes. Okay. You live in Shanghai full time? Um, yes. Even though I'm from Guangzhou, near Hong Kong. Yeah, in the Guangdong region, right? Mm. So Guangzhou would just be north of uh, Shenzhen, because that Guangdong region, if I'm getting it right, Shenzhen to Mm. Guangdong or Guangzhou is kind of that corridor, that manufacturing hub corridor that was just so famous 20 years ago. Yeah, with Dongguan in between. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Now, I want to start out by just jumping into your journalism career. So if you could tell us a little bit about your fashion journalism career and how you ended up writing for Women's Wear Daily. Okay, so I went to school in the States. I um, did my undergrad at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Um, That was um, during the Obama era. So it was pretty fun, 2010, 2014. Um, I kind of like ended up stumbled upon journalism on a whim, like I always grew up reading magazines, especially fashion magazines for fun. And then um, we had a good journalism school. I was like, why not? And then so journalism school was two years and I ended up doing an internship at Bloomberg News as a uh, focus on tech, as a tech reporter, um, which was pretty fun. That was when Alibaba went, um, did their IPO. 
um, in New York, actually. So, so it was a, it was exciting times. And then, um, I kind of hung around in New York cause like that's kind of fashion central for, for the States, right? Like for a year um, before my visa, the student visa expired. And afterwards, um, somehow in New York, I met a correspondent for a Chinese publication called CBN Weekly. It's one of the biggest like weekly magazines, um, in China, state owned, owned by SMG actually. Um, and, um, so I interned with the correspondent for a while. We did a lot of fun stuff. Like we went to Detroit, um, and we kind of like, like basically we, we like cover interesting, um, tech, fashion, startup, lifestyle stories for this Chinese publication. Yeah, because Detroit's not exactly a fashion hub. It's the old, you know, it was the the automaker hub of the U.S. And then, you know, like Steel City is Pittsburgh, but Detroit was really where the cars were made. And then when it kind of lost its identity and, and manufacturing went maybe overseas or to other places, I know Detroit has reinvented itself and taken a lot of those old factories, old buildings and really reinvented itself as kind of a tech hub. So mm. that makes sense. I remember um, like there was a brand that came out of Detroit that really caught our eye. Shinola It's this, it's this watch brand that was kind of like t- um, taking the approach of saying that we are a, you know, we are using the manufacturing know-how, but like, with by crafting watches. Um, and like at the time, like Whole Foods opened their first, first outlet in Detroit, stuff like that. Like it was, yeah, definitely like interesting time to do a story on Detroit. Um, I think there was a book called Detroit and American autopsy around that time written by Charlie LaDuff. So, um, like this legendary local writer, journalist. Um, yeah. So we did that. Um, I, I wasn't like, doing much of the writing. I was just like, just like enjoying like that kind of um, experience of being uh, just like experiencing things. That was the most interesting part about being a journalist. You like ask people random questions, sometimes like stupid questions, um, because you can't do that. It's your job. Uh, Anyways, I continued to work for this company when I came back to China, first in Beijing, actually, um, in 2015 and 2016. And I, um, I escaped to Shanghai because it was the smog situation in Beijing was so bad at that time. Um, so in Shanghai, I, um, after a few years, I was writing everything, um, not just fashion, but then um, there was an p- opportunity to work for Business of Fashion of China edition at the time. So I was like, oh, this is the perfect opportunity because I've always wanted to like focus on fashion and kind of be a part of the fashion community. So um, I did that. And then the magazine like folded. I, I left a little bit before it folded because of COVID. Um, and the Chinese edition, obviously, like the English version is still running. Um, and then I went to Vogue Business because at the time we had a really fun, 
um, sort of like this advertising creative person as our um, editor in chief, uh, Paul E. Ming. He's based in Taiwan. Um, and then he's just like always had all these crazy ideas. He would like be helping us like get quotes from Virgil because he's like obviously WhatsApp friends with Virgil Abloh at the time. Um, and stuff like that. He just like had access and he was a fun personality to, to work with. So I enjoyed my time there. And then after two years, I had the opportunity to work with Women's Wear Daily because there was like a slot open to cover China. And then I, I um, got a chance. I got in like a, over a little bit over a year ago. You've had a unique path to get to where you are. And one of the things that I was thinking about while you were explaining your journey was you had a lot of fluidity to be able to move into different areas. You were able to be very exploratory with who you are, what you like, what you're good at without, it seems, a lot of pressure. Was your family really supportive of your journey to develop and find your career path? I think like as a single child, they definitely expect you to excel at what you do, but also because I, I spent a little bit of time in New Jersey when I was like eight, from eight, six to eight, because my mom was like working there for a little bit. So like my, my parents had that understanding you kind of have to let them explore. You can't really set a path for them. And, and I was a little rebellious, I feel like. So yeah, my mom was like, you just like do what you want to do, but just like try to try not to fuck up. But be successful at it, like work really hard, try to be as successful as you can at whatever you're going to do. Try to be the best at whatever you're going to do. I like that. Do you think that that is a change in the culture that you're seeing more of in China? I've heard stories recently that sort of um, is an extreme example of that. Like I know that because um, in China there are a lot of like second generation rich kids, right? They call them like rich kids, Chinese rich kids, basically. Um, and they, a lot of their parents are like, um, we don't think you are smart enough, so don't get involved in the family business. Uh, there is no succession plan. Um, you do what you want. Like, I'll give you this amount of money. Um, try, like, do your best. Like, we have no expectations. Um, so they're kind of, like, disenfranchised a little bit, right? Um, they're on their own. They're kind of, like, lost. They're definitely, like, a sort of, like, a diaspora with <laughs> local diaspora. <laughs> kind of, like... Sort of, there's this kind of um, situation like that in China, which I found fascinating. I want to quickly touch on Singles Day. It just wrapped up uh, just a couple of weeks ago. What were your takeaways from this year's edition of the Shopping Extravaganza? This year, like on the ground, it felt hard, just really quiet. No one was really talking about it. No one was. There was no excitement building up to the day. Or during pre-sales period, which is usually like uh, two weeks ahead of the actual single stay on November 11th, um, people were, 
stocking up on like you know consumer goods like toilet papers, detergents, stuff like that. They weren't going for the you know extravagant like fashion items that are that are actually on sale. Um, that that are like thirty percent, forty percent off during during um single stay, which means that like brands kind of um started their sales period early just kind of to accommodate single stay a little bit um which i think uh reflects how people like brands are under pressure this year it's interesting because during covid we had this almost step down in uh, maslow's hierarchy of needs where Mm. you were kind of going for the basics versus going for the wants did you have you started to see the trend through Singles Day and some of the data that's come out that people are now feeling more comfortable uh, spending a little bit more higher end things and then more wants versus needs? Definitely. Um, I think people are, people have money in the bank for sure, but they're just like the, the collective unconsciousness is that we are bracing for harder times ahead. We shouldn't be spending, and you know, Chinese people are always have always been good at saving money, so they're just like yeah. really flexing that muscle <laughs> at the moment. So it's just just about how to make them think differently about spending. I feel like because they have money to spend, they're not like starving. Let's talk about luxury brands, and I'm curious to see how what you're saying about the culture of frugality that is prevalent, but also the a little bit of showing off your wealth if you have it type of aspect as well. And and it's an interesting position for luxury brands in China to be in with kind of the culture of how the Chinese shop, but also how they represent and how they are on social. So I know that luxury brands are still finding growth in 2023 in China, despite the economic challenges and some of the headwinds with maybe housing and things. How do you explain that growth for luxury brands? Where Where's that coming from amidst these economic times that aren't as like they were five years ago? And then for the brands, who have been the winners and who have been the losers so far? So I think we have to remember this is still a very young market. Um, like luxury brands, the first of them was like Zania or Louis Vuitton. They entered in... 1989 or the early 1990s so it's only been a little over 30 years so um i think brands are still seeing a lot of growth potential and remember that like luxury spending per capita is still like for china it's only still the eighth or ninth so like way behind hong kong or seoul or tokyo those these like key luxury cities in the world so there's that potential. Um, so brands are taking the approach that, oh, we definitely are still expanding China. We have to keep on moving because we need to have that exposure and we need to start educating um, more shoppers about what luxury is. Um, so have to have that in their kind of mindset that, you know, you kind of, you want, you need luxury in your life. Like people say that Louis Vuitton is so successful because it's kind of like the Coca-Cola of luxury brands. Um, everyone knows what it is. 
it's the people's luxury brand. Some people even say that, which I find interesting. And then I think that there in China, the retail market is um, also kind of weird because there are only like two extremes. Like you have the super cheap Taobao stuff, Tmall stuff. Um, and then you have the ultra expensive luxury items. There's no in between. Um, there's no like mid range. There's not really, well, there is a shrinking mid range product category, which I think is opportunity for some brands. Yeah. And, and you're right. Like, I think that that has to be cultural. I think you see it in vehicles. Like it's, it's, it's why buy mid range? What does that really say about me? I need it to either speak to who I am from a luxury point of view, or I just simply need to save money so that I can get to that luxury position faster. But sitting in the in-between almost, I think, culturally feels like a waste of time. So they (laughs) just don't bother. Hmm. What do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's a lack of confidence in a way. And also like people kind of only want the best, maybe. There's that mentality. Um, Like they have trust, so much trust in these luxury brands, right? That they believe like this is, you know, what they should own. Um, they should, they should kind of save up for that. Just like how they save up for a vehicle or a, a apartment. Do you find that that, then maybe on the opposite side, then, then there's a lack of trust in mid range. Like I know mm. that a saying that we have in North America is best bang for your buck, right? So you'll spend, you know, you could get the $200 tires or you could get the $2,000 tires, but the thousand dollar tires are probably your best bang for your buck. You're getting some of the best. It's going to last longer, good quality, but it's not going to, it's only half of what the most expensive are, but you don't get that famous brand name. I don't know, you know, over here, I think people are pretty comfortable being middle-class and having value. Is that not a thing yet in China, you would say? I think maybe maybe this is kind of the workings of the luxury brands. They're shaping the psychology is that we want, you know, luxury is what the middle class should own. Like that's their best thing for their bucks. Maybe it's that shift in sort of perception in what value, you know, what value means. Maybe it's that. So it's marketing. It's marketing. It's all marketing. It's good marketing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. One of your most recent stories was on the Ami Cafe pop-ups. Now, the mm. CRO of WPIC, Peter McMath, he was just in Beijing. And I know that he wrote, uh, he visited the pop-up in San Lituan, And then uh, he loved it, wrote about it on LinkedIn. Can you tell mm. the audience about these pop-ups and the unique blend of fashion and food that is happening in China? Yeah, that pop-up was interesting because like to my first reaction and what my friends were saying was that, oh, people really don't have money to buy luxury right now. Like, but they still want the brand name. They still want a recognizable, you know, brand association. So they buy a coffee, a cup of coffee for like, what, three bucks. And yeah, I'm just, um, I was just thinking how that would affect brand perception. Like if you start selling coffee and pastries, do you become the people, does that help you in becoming the people's 
brand, luxury brand, or does that kind of cheapens your brand value? Um, I'm not sure about, you know, which way to think. You know what? And maybe they're not sure either. Maybe this is a designed experiment that they're gathering data and then taking the feedback and obviously maybe doing some sentiment analysis on what is being said across the socials to understand if that's a route they should invest in or not. I have always appreciated China's innovation to just, as we say, throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And they're really good about that. Not everything, you know, they can't all be winners, Um, but you can certainly learn a lot from the losers um, Mm. and help you better pick your winners. Mm. Now let's talk a little bit more about fashion trends. Could you Maybe tell us and identify for the audience some of the dominating new fashion trends in China this year and what that potentially reflects about the current cultural tides of China. That's an interesting question. And I think it definitely echoes whatever is happening globally. Like whatever Bella Hadid is wearing, Hailey Bieber is wearing, that gets... Um, that gets like sort of exposed on Chinese social media really quickly. Um, people look up to these like biggest influencers in in the world, um, and uh, so so there's that sort of Y2K right that the, the Balenciaga aesthetic is still very big as d- despite their issues abroad, right? Um, because it's kind of like. An effortless look. People want to look effortless, but like, oh, I'm I'm also highly branded. That that's kind of the um, mentality for young people. I I feel like um, because at least in like Shanghai and Beijing, like where a lot of like young creatives live, um, their mentality is that well, first of all, a lot of them don't really have like office jobs anymore so they can kind of embrace a more kind of like street relaxed silhouette there's no dress code in that they need to abide to um and then i think there is that but then like the people that do actually work for like a foreign corporation for a big company they just have to either wear uniform or, or just dress still like pretty conservatively, I think. And um, that hasn't really changed over the years. What about other type of fashion and style when it comes to facial hair, hair in general, piercings, tattoos? As you're speaking about more street and relaxed fit, dressing for comfort, um, spending five hours to look like you only spent five minutes putting together your <laughs> your outfit. Are any of those other things just it's just kind of like I think it's part and parcel with fashion anyway. So what about the accessorizing of the rest of the body? What's happening there in China? I just realized people don't really like to stack um jewelry. Like, you know, it's it's pretty normal to like have a few, you know, earrings like stacked one, up against one each hoop. other like yeah it's only one it's a one hoop uh sort of um aesthetic here it's very clean and simple as well um or also people don't kind of like 
are not aware of um, how to style themselves because like it demands a certain sort of like awareness and authority over like what personal style is. And I think that's probably so lacking at the moment. Yeah. I mean, it's a skill. It's learned. It's it, it needs practice and it needs more people doing it in your social circles so that you can compare. You could talk, you can go for coffee, chat about who did what with their hair, their makeup or their accessories and start to grow within from each other. So maybe it's still early days. Are tattoos ever going to be a thing in China? Tattoos are, I would say like in Asia, like tattoos are definitely cooler in Korea in Seoul specifically because it's kind of illegal to get tattoos so it's a part of underground culture whereas here it's it's just like out in the open you can get tattoos wherever like as easy as getting a haircut um and I think a lot of yeah a lot of people like are getting tattoos um that are kind of like has this childish aesthetic at least in shanghai among a, a group of young people i i see um meandering on the streets it's like this like color tattoo that's kind of cute and like you would guess like that shouldn't be a permanent ink but then people are getting it playing around with their bodies i think more freely in that sense all right let me jump into another fashion style cultural something that really boomed over here we call it almost like the the lululemon era um mm. you know that and it was all driven around health and wellness so a couple of questions maybe three what do you think is driving the health and wellness boom in china because there have to be some underlying currents maybe just seeing their aging parents and grandparents, maybe not the best social health care system available, some things like that. Maybe it's, maybe it's fear, right? What I'm getting at, what is that root cause? And then interesting examples of how that's translated out into, into fashion and which brands are starting to pick that up. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Lululemon because it's definitely one of the first and also brands that's kind of leading that trend and still is, I guess. There are local players like Maya Active, but um, I think there's a consensus among um, consumers that like the, it's hard. The Lululemon fabric is so hard to hard to sort of replicate and beat, um, and then the fit. It really makes you look skinny. That's that's like what Chinese people want to look like. It's like we don't want to look fit. We want to look skinny. Um, and um, so Lululemon, I think, really took off definitely after the COVID years, because um, people like you know obviously that like awareness of like oh I, we have to stay healthier. Um, it's kind of like um, embedded in the minds, people's minds more now. Um, and I think Lululemon also took off when like there was a yoga craze in China, maybe in uh five or six years ago. It was just one of those sports that kind of is female friendly, is actually highly competitive. Um, and like you know how like Asian people are very into involution or well, not very into, but you know, the mindset is geared towards like 
like competition and like beating each other. But then the result is kind of like it uh not really the best for everyone, right? I think that's what involution means, right? Um and so so yoga sort of really uh and, and Lululemon really kind of went hand in hand and and exploded in popularity. And then afterwards I think there's also that trend of like outdoors glamping um or or uh what is it called like biking in the city like urban like yeah, just being urban cycling very, and urban yeah. cycling um stuff like that that's kind of like more lifestyle driven more instagram more like social media friendly sports became prominent and um i think like brands like Arcterex really jumped on that trend in like Lululemon kind of is trying to get on the like outdoorsy trend, but like because Chinese people want the best, like what we said before, like Arcterex is branded as the Hermes of outdoor wear. Yeah. Best outdoor tech wearables, you know, breathable, stretchable, waterproof, lasts a long time, keeps the heat out or keeps the heat in or whatever it has to do to perform. It's interesting. I'm not sure that's wise for Lululemon to get out of their core competency uh, and move into the outdoor um, athletic, but athleisure for sure. Right. And, and that's interesting. I mean, the big thing around here was, was this absolute phenomenon of just wearing yoga pants everywhere it was it was you know it was difficult to adjust to um, the new jeans right basically yeah that's what they call it jeans were at least a little bit baggier they weren't as so form-fitting i mean Mm. girls used to wear nylons and now it's just you know nylons under a skirt or a dress and now they just got rid of the skirt or the dress and we're just wearing nylons Mm. that's really what it seemed like and it was it was it was i'm not gonna lie it was a little bit shocking uh, for a lot of years to kind of just adjust to that being normalized. Is that something that is okay and normalized in China as well? I think outside of the gym, people um, still are a little self-conscious. So that, for example, you wear like a really long hoodie to cover up your butt. That's that kind of situation. Um, even though it's like, no one's going to harass you on the street, but it's, so like the com- more conservative mindset still leads people to do these kind of cover-ups. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm absolutely here for it because I think it has really empowered women and made them be just comfortable and okay in their bodies and not afraid that they're going to be judged. Or even if they are, they don't care. And I love that. I think it's been a long time coming. So I'm really happy that you know, you want to go for it, go for it, like, um, and, uh, and just own it. So yeah, I think like, it's a phenomenal when you see a girl on the street that's dressing that really total Lululemon look, but then their face is highly, they have, they've had a lot, a lot of stuff done to their face, like plastic surgery. And then they have some like crazy hairstyle and then carrying a, carrying a, luxury handbag and like oversized With a little sneakers. tiny dog inside yeah it's kind of the new beverly hills look right it's kind of uh yeah it's interesting how like 
girls here are embracing that style, but in a different, more more courageous way. I think once more once gym outfits became more expensive than suits, you were going to have a market for it. People were going to jump on it. Let's talk about Chinese fashion designers. There's been a rising global popularity for Chinese designers, which is awesome. Can you comment on some of the big names, some of the big Chinese fashion designers that are out there and really kind of what's what in your opinion is driving the trend of acceptance globally for their designs? I think, yeah, Chinese designers really grew up together. Like they started, I would say, 10 years ago. So right around the time where when I graduated, they um, they came back to China to launch their brand because the local um, fashion, fashion week, Shanghai Fashion Week committee, like kind of really persuaded them to do that. And then also to, to the, be, be presented as a group, like as a generation really helped sort of like amplify their voice. Um, and I think at the time there were, before that, there wasn't that many, there wasn't a group of Chinese designers, you know, I would say like, like K-pop groups that like you need, like that group synergy, right? And that was present in maybe 2014, 2015. And then Shanghai Fashion Week really kind of created a platform for them to have to 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 um sort sort of really show their style and also invite global edi- um editors and tastemakers buyers to Shanghai to kind of see uh, what's up here um in, so instead of having to to go to Paris go to Milan to showcase their work they can kind of like have more creative freedom because you know the system better like the infrastructure right better here. So, so they have more freedom to be creative and present their work in the best way possible. So on that side, on the, on the presentation side, there was that advantage. And then on the retail side, like there was, um, um, there was a buyer's boutique or concept store boom in China. Like every city basically had their own buyer's boutique. It was kind of like, um, some of it was a rebranding of, uh, like shops that just sell, sold random fakes. But then, like, after they um, made their first um, bucket of money, the, the shop owner wanted to sort of create more of a stylized approach to selling clothes. So then they would start buying these Chinese designers' side um, products. So I would say, like, at the height, there were, like, over, like, a thousand sh- concept stores for uh, in, all over the country. So um, there was that market for Chinese designers and it was easy for brands, Chinese brands to kind of quickly expand to like 50, 100 sh- um, accounts um, in China over like say two to three seasons. It's like if you have a recognizable style um, and you have them and then you could easily have that market. Um, and then. I think for the past in the past few years, some of the biggest names are like Shu Shu Tong, like the very cute sort of girly brand, like schoolgirl style kind of approach, but you know with the presented with like a more fashionable um, image. And then there's um, there's like men's for menswear. There's like pronounce or Chen Pong. The first one is like a brand that really kind of um, 
presents a modern take on the Chinese traditional Chinese aesthetics or design elements. And the second one is like a puffer jacket brand that like Cardi B has wore their stuff. And um, I think he's just like very smart. The designer is a very smart businessman. He knows like how to kind of create a brand based off of like a a product that has that's very singular. What avenues do you think Chinese designers are using to be popular? And by that, I mean, are they playing with color? Are they playing with with texture? Are they playing with um, the type of, of material? Are they playing with cut? Are they playing with fit? Where are they typically going to create their own identity that then becomes popular? I think they they play with all of that. Um, and sometimes because of the quick supply chain, so all the supply chain resources here, they can kind of see what's happening in Milan and Paris and quickly create a more localized version of that uh, for the China market. Um, kind of because they are aware that, you know, certain fits and styles like skirt length or fabrics are more Chinese friendly. So they're localizing. Yes. Do you think they have an advantage to be able to quickly a B test what's popular and what's not and the 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 the, re, the rapidity of of data and the accuracy of the data meaning that it's that it's kind of easy to clean and understand and then put into production do you think all of that speed advantage is really helping them as well I think some brands are definitely really figuring out how to create a, a fast response supply chain um and some brands are not doing that, um, but for the brands that are doing that, they are, I don't think they're using tech, high tech. They're just using common sense to, to kind of, yeah. Um, cause they, if they get, a, they could get a sort of feedbacks from the local uh, retailers re- relatively fast. And then they can replenish the, 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 the stocks, the products really quickly based on the needs of the shoppers preferences yeah there's that takes like maybe a month i mean that that is that's super fast i think in comparison to 20 30 years ago of course i mean that is extremely rapid i wanted to quickly touch you you mentioned being able to you know fashion week and then being able to launch stores Uh, i would just be like your general 30,000 foot view and opinion on where are we at in China offline versus online? How important is that to, to luxury as well? Offline is definitely, you know, um, what luxury, the luxury, well, let me say this again. I think luxury is definitely still like focused on the offline because that's where you can control the so-called customer journey. Um, because everything is so scattered and and sort of online, right? Because you remember we have all these platforms, like all the major platforms like Weibo, Xiaohongshu, uh, WeChat, uh, Bilibili, and, and Douyin. They're they all have their own ecosystem, their own narrative, their own style, right? So. Everything is highly um, 
I would say decentralized in the in the online space. Um, so it's hard for brands to have the create one singular voice, but offline you can control all of that. Um, everything is just like it's real. It's it's just like that one option. I think luxury is in a bit of a unique position when it comes to online and offline, because like you said, they, they want to be in control of the narrative. They want to be in control of the customer journey or the customer experience. And that's a big part of them being able to showcase and differentiate themselves is just that five, six, seven star type of experience. And they can really do that in their showroom versus online, which is just kind of a noisy place and very easy for people to copy. Now that the pandemic is over, what sort of balance are, are brands now looking at versus the online versus offline? Are, and, and basically what I'm asking is, are they reinvesting in offline? Do they, are we starting to see that that is coming back? I just remember an example, maybe that answers your previous question. Um, I remember like a few years ago when I interviewed the Chanel CEO, um, uh, the head of their fashion and, you know, couture um, department, he was saying that we only create like the 1% of content, the rest, the 99% is created by our customers, like lovers of Chanel or, or, you know, like people that are aware of the brand. And like, I think that's definitely sort of amplified with, uh, with the popularity of, especially Xiaohongshu, Little Red Book. It's like really fashion driven social media platform, like Instagram. Um, like a lot of uh, executives are like kind of jealous of Chanel, like UGC, so user generated content that they are able to have in uh, China. Like all their all their like shoppers, their VIPs are just like constantly posting stuff online um, about Chanel, about what they bought, um, unboxing. Um, and they have these like really funny looking VIPs who are actually um, just like a reseller of Chanel. So basically they are helping to create a booming secondary market for Chanel in, in China. <clears throat> And that's kind of help. That's in a way how interns helps like create a more sort of hype around Chanel. It's definitely like the the supreme of our age in China, at least. But it takes so much effort, so much investment to create the aura of the brand. Yes, once you get there, you can only put out one percent of content. But you know, because once you once you know that anybody who showcases or can show off that brand, what it means and what it's going to say about you. I mean, it's all the R&D that goes into creating that. Then you get to enjoy that. But anybody jealous of that has to understand how much work and how much money it took to get there. Um, and so um, it is it is a long way to get there um, for sure. Now that the economy is like not looking as rosy and then like the market is normalizing, it really kind of shows like um, if you're doing a good job in China. That's right. It's kind of weeding out. If you were in a precarious position or you weren't quite there yet, you're, you're probably gone. Only the strong survive in this type of environment. What is your assessment of the strength of domestic brands and designers in the beauty fashion spaces? 
And do Chinese consumers prefer local players versus foreign players? How does that balance out in your opinion? I think local players are definitely better at playing the social media game. They know how to like, you know, take different marketing approaches on the, all these different platforms and, you know, how to create a, a sort of, um, what's it called? A hero, a hero product, like bestsellers, um, that kind of really kind of can make a brand, especially in, I think in cosmetics, um, because it's kind of like fast fashion, the trends change and very quickly, right? So these brands are like pushing out products like relatively on a short time span. Um, so I think local players um, definitely have have that opportunity. Um, and I think like maybe a few years ago, it was easier for niche brands from from America, from Europe to enter the China market. But now it just seems like the presence online just kind of has shrunk because it's, it is harder to break in um, if you don't have like backing from a big corporation like L'Oreal. Um, so it's definitely like um, um, dom- there is a dominance um, in terms of in the cosmetic sort of segment by local brands. But in like skincare, I think like big companies like L'Oreal, Estee Lauder still have that sort of, um, they take that research approach and I think that's persuasive and they have that sort of barrier of entry in terms of the technology they're creating. Um, And local brands are still catching up. Do you think, given how China does marketing, like you said, user-generated content, now in fashion, as we've seen over the years, the creators and the designers are quite often the faces. They're the celebrities of a brand. You don't see that when it comes to skincare. You don't see that when it comes to makeup. It's a, it's a brand behind makeup and it's a person behind fashion. Does that make it easier for local designers in fashion to gain popularity in China and outside of China faster because there's a person that can be associated with it versus cosmetics where now it's a brand and there's just a general distrust of brands versus people. So it's going to be much harder for L'Oreal and the rest to be displaced as the leaders in the cosmetics market versus fashion in China. That's an interesting perspective you kind of brings up here i think that that could be true yeah that's that's a valid sort of assessment the issue i would say is that like um that the the time i've spent with these designers some of them are not that eloquent at expressing their thoughts and ideas like um like just making up even making up something making up a story about their their brand their collection um, it's still a lot of things that they say are very like abstract. Maybe that's part of the Chinese culture, like you know, just very Taoism, Confucianism, just very abstract as well. Maybe it's a reflection of that. But I think because like fashion, it's a form of um, it's a form of 
wearable art or whatever it it has to function um people still want that sort of uh a glimmer of sort of um whimsy or just like random random creativity presented alongside the wearable garment so there's that sort of missing sort of um, narrative i think well it is different you see some like I see somebody on one side of the street and I see somebody on the other side of the street. I can say that person from a hundred meters away, that person's Louis Vuitton, that person's Chanel. You can't yeah. do that with makeup. That's you can't true. do that with cosmetics. Yeah. Right? So it, it definitely, we're not really talking apples to apples, but mm. anyway, I digress. Denny Hu, who is writing for the leading fashion publication, Women's Wear Daily. Love chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Todd. I feel like I learned so much um, through our conversations. It was really fun. Let's keep in touch. Let me know when you're back in, you know, the high. But only the Pushy side, not the Poo Jersey side, right? Yeah, it, it, it might take some sort of like mental powwow before I can get my ass to the other side. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm dying to come back. It has been a minute, um, and I'm definitely overdue. Uh, maybe we can convince the powers that be at WPIC to take me over there. There's, there's so much going on with them uh, and their different campuses and organization that uh, they're expanding throughout Southeast Asia that I'm eager to get my eyes on over there. But I digress. Thank you very much for coming on the show. For all of you listening uh, audio only on any of the podcast platforms where you get any of our podcasts, please don't forget to go and watch Denny and I chatting on our YouTube channel. That's where you can pick up a lot of shorts as well. So for everybody at the negotiation and for me and from Denny, thank you guys very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.